Welcome to episode 15 of the Floss for Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, Patrick and I are interviewing Professor Ben Marwick from the University of Washington. He's a researcher in Paleolithic archaeology, mainly in Southeast Asia. How, Ben? Thank you for being with us today. Could you please introduce yourself and explain some of your current and past research projects? Yes, hi there. So, my name is Ben Marwick, and uh, I'm an associate professor at the University of Washington in Seattle in the United States. And I mostly work on uh, Paleolithic archaeology in Southeast Asia. So this includes uh, China, and currently I have um, field work in Myanmar to the west and Vietnam to the east, and some projects in Australia as well. So quite broad kind of geographical interest, but the thing that ties it all together is really an interest in you know the relationship between humans and their environment over a long time period and how do people adapt to uh, changes in the environment, especially through the things like through the technology that they use, right? So in, in these time periods, you know, 10 or 100,000 years ago, the main technology is the stone tool. So I study the stone tools mostly. Okay. In your region, reason why you chose this particular region, the Southeast Asia? Uh, yes, you know, I did my uh, undergraduate and a master's degree in Australia, and uh, it thinks uh, we are quite, uh, Australian archaeologists have, are quite sophisticated in their approach to hunter-gatherer archaeology, because in Australia, for most of the time that people have been there, it's been people living as hunter-gatherers and working with stone tools and some other kind of things. So many Australian archaeologists very very complex methods that I learned as a student, and then I l kind of looked around for places to use those where it could be really you know, Im impactful and productive. And I could see in Southeast Asia that there were, you know, there were a few archaeologists there, but a lot of potential to do exciting work with some of the skills and uh, techniques and uh, theories that I'd learned through my training in Australia. So I went to Southeast Asia to kind of see what we could learn by uh, applying these methods into this region that's kind of relatively unstudied. There are just not many researchers active there. So it's been quite good, been very productive, yeah. Okay. Yeah. At first sight, it may seem a bit counterintuitive to imagine an archaeologist using new technologies. Where does open source software fit into your research workflow? Yes, it's a good question. So I try to fit it in, uh, you know, at every stage, really. And um, so from the field collection, you know, try to use uh, open source tools at the point where we're you know, doing excavation or survey and this kind of thing. You know, right through to the very end, to thinking about the publication process and archiving the data and try to uh, find some tool that I can use there that is going to be sustainable and cheap or free to use and something that is accessible to my collaborators. So, you know, I work a lot with archaeologists and researchers in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam and Thailand and Myanmar, and, and they don't often have uh, the same kind of access to, to uh, you know, their universities don't have the licenses and this kind of thing to commercial software. So it makes collaboration a lot easier if we can all use the same software and they don't have to pay or struggle to, to get access to it. So, it um, yeah, we try to use it at, at every stage. Could you provide us with some examples of open source software you're utilizing? Uh, yes. So, uh, so for field data collection, we like to use space, you know, from the, I think the LibreOffice uh, suite. And we also like to use, uh, there's a nice uh, mobile data collection thing. Let me just try to remember the name. It is, uh, oh, I have to check it actually. 
well, I come back to it later, maybe. But a very nice um, Android app for that you can customize for uh, just in collecting data directly, and you can have a form and drop downs and customize that very nicely. And uh, then, of course, uh, we're using uh, R once we get things into a database or a spreadsheet. Are really quite uh, quite enthusiastic about using R for as many things as possible. And then we, you know, we try to use things like uh, open source uh, word processing or uh, in document preparation, I like to write in Markdown a lot, but sometimes we have to, it's not familiar, uh, and sometimes there's a, there's a high bar for people to learn to use some of these tools. So a lot of times, um, quite often, we will use a mixture. You know, maybe, maybe we use Microsoft Word, and then we use uh, LibreOffice Writer or something like that to get things done. So, Or I, I, I may use uh, you know, Emacs or something like that, and then another person may use a closed source text editor that they find more comfortable to use. So we try, try to compromise in a place where, uh, you know, we can have a, some good open source options, but if my colleagues are not comfortable, then they can, you know, collaborate with a tool they're comfortable with as well. Okay. And if you look at publications from your peers, how common is it that they use open source tools too, or do they use more proprietary tools? Well, if I think about people in my discipline, it's not that common, actually. I think a lot of people are trained in uh, proprietary tools that are just uh, you know, very, very widely used on their university. For example, their advisor used it, and their, their senior uh, professors teach it, and so that's what they learn. And it takes quite a bit of uh, you know, effort for somebody to go outside of their the traditions that they were raised in as a student and as a trainee to find some new software that maybe is open source. I think it's kind of a, a generational shift that we look for where people move away from the software, the tool choices that their, their advisors and their professors uh, taught them about out into the broader kind of uh, catalog of other tools that are available. Especially, I think, you know, my generation, many open source tools were not very good uh, when they're learning. Uh, you know, when they're undergraduate or graduate student, uh, open source require a serious commitment to be efficient. But nowadays, I think the situation is quite different. For an undergraduate now or an early career researcher, many open source tools are highly mature and very efficient, maybe even more efficient sometimes to use than the commercial equivalent. So it's much easier now, I feel, to get into it. And I see, I believe I see more of the early career researcher moving toward the open source uh, software kind of catalog than to the commercial one, or at least uh, struggling to make a decision about which one should they use. Should they use, for example, you know, for the GIS, should they use QGIS or R, or should they be using ArcGIS and they have to debate it uh, because it's not obvious anymore. In the past, maybe 10 years ago, QGIS not quite there, you know, awkward to use, but ArcGIS kind of still pretty solid at that point, so it's an easy choice. But now they, this, uh, it's competitive and so I see more people, more and more people shifting. And I see amongst the teaching that we do and here at the University of Washington, me and some of my colleagues, uh, we have a pretty big commitment to the open source software for our students. And so we, we kind of shift over the last couple of years, you know, teaching uh, ArcGIS and SPSS. And we shift now to QGIS and R and Python in our classes. So the students will see, you know, they will just learn that as the normal tool. Then they will say when they graduate and get a job and people say do this work and then people and then they will just open r or python or whatever and it will just be the natural thing for them to do it so i think it's kind of generational 
shift in the choice of tools and open source software is becoming much more um, efficient and accessible and mature. And, you know, not just because the technology, not just because there are more functions built in and it's more pleasant to look at, but there's a really a large community around many of these tools now. And that makes it so, uh, so much so sustainable, especially for me, my experience with R. You know, I, I tried to use R many times in the past. And then it wasn't until, you know, around 2010 that I could really kind of like feel comfortable with it. It's around the time R Studio appeared. And I needed a bit of like, like sort of sugar for my eyes kind of thing. But also the size of the R using community, I think, reached kind of critical mass there. And there are a lot of people on Stack Overflow and a lot of questions that I already had had already been answered. And I'm a bit too shy to ask the question myself. So, I'm not going to do that, but if someone else has asked it for me and I can see their answer, then I'm, just, I'm going to copy and paste their answers. So the size of a community, I think, is a critical factor in many open source tools that are really central for research. Uh, we see those communities have reached a, a kind of critical mass that, that's really sustainable and, and uh, useful for, for students and researchers to take advantage of. Whereas in the past, you know, maybe five or ten years ago, the communities were small and you need to be really courageous i think to to make a big commitment to using open source software and i really admire those people who kind of like the the early adopters to these tools who did spend a lot of time you know solving all the problems uh that that i now you know can easily solve in a matter of seconds because they spent probably days or weeks kind of trying to work it out for themselves yeah on your github profile we can see that you have a lot of projects in r what was your initial reason to start using r instead of other and an a statistical analytic tool you spoke about spss um why at first did you make the switch yes yes good question but i i just want to return to the previous question while the answer has okay. come to me about more general some of the open source tools that i use and the the field uh, data collection software that I really like. The name is called Open Data Kit, or ODK. So that's what we use on a, you know Android tablet or even mobile phone. We can customize the data collection form and then and then output into some sort of spreadsheet, which we can then work with very nicely now. So Open Data Kit is that is that kind of start end of our open source software pipeline. Open Data Kit and then R and the open uh, source spreadsheet and then other things. Anyway, but to the question of... Um, uh, initial reason to get started with R. So as I was saying, you know, I'm using um, my, my training is around the sort of commercial tools like Excel and SPSS. That's what my professors knew and, and taught me about. And uh, But I'm reading, you know, a lot of blogs and people on Twitter and they're using R and all these cool R packages. And I'm reading uh, some journal articles and some statistics journals that are introducing new algorithms. And there's an R package that they're publishing with their algorithm. I'm really excited to to try these new techniques. And as I was doing my PhD, I, I became interested in some, you know, maybe to the to the statistician, not that sophisticated, but to an archaeologist, these kind of exciting methods, you know, like resampling and bootstrapping, I thought were really exciting techniques. And and they can be done in Excel, but it didn't feel very natural. And it seemed kind of uh, peculiar to do it that way. And I thought I, in the literature that I'm reading about these statistics, people are using some kind of programming language. And most of them are using R. So I thought, okay, it looks like all the serious stuff, especially in the social sciences and the natural sciences, is happening using this language R. So I should really kind of get, get familiar with it if I want to use these methods myself or maybe maybe even contribute one of those kind of things. Uh, so I started, uh, you know, sort of gradually moved from SPSS into S+, uh, because there was a nice kind of bootstrapping, resampling library for that software. 
And there was a, a little bit of coding involved in that. I thought, okay, this is a nice kind of stepping stone away from point and click into like the serious kind of programming world. But, you know, I would download and install R maybe every couple of months on my computer and just look at it and be like, oh, it's too difficult. I can't, I don't even understand. Like, how can you, how can I get my my spreadsheet into this into this thing and do anything useful? I can do two plus two, but then after that, it's just uh, impossible. So I couldn't imagine myself using it uh, for a long time. I download, install, and take a look and be like, I can't do it. And then and then stop and go back to S plus or SPSS and and just kind of feel jealous reading all the blogs and people on Twitter doing cool stuff with R. And and then finally, you know, uh, our studio was released or some some early version of our studio appeared and I downloaded and installed that and I read a re- some really nice reviews that said, yes, this is kind of the gateway drug into R. I thought, okay, that sounds promising. So I... I have a go and I think, yes, you know, there's a few more buttons here and it's a bit more friendly to my eye and I can sort of imagine how things can come in and out. So I can read in some file and then I can output some plot or something like that. It seems like it's with the, the end, the sort of a barrier to entry. It just was low enough. Now I feel like, okay, I can, I can try this out. So I just kind of thought, okay, we'll go cold turkey on what I'm doing on Excel and SPSS and S plus and just make a full-time commitment to this, this tool for, I don't know, six months or something like that, just try to do all the normal things. And if it seems like it's, uh, you know, paying off, I will, I will stick with it. And if it just seems impossible, I will go back. And and it seemed like I could go on. I could, uh, you know, copy and paste enough stuff from Stack Overflow to uh, to do most of my work. And then I could see on, uh, you know, on CRAN, which is this kind of uh, archive of our packages, I could just see thousands and thousands of really exciting things there, an active, very active community, people developing new packages and putting them all the time. I'm like, oh, I must, I really, I really want to try out this new package. I want to look at their thing. And, and so I felt very excited about being on the cutting edge of so much, uh, you know, visualization and statistical methods that, that I could see would be directly relevant to my work. And then, you know, a lot of the infrastructure of R is so focused on uh, reproducibility and being able to run, just run the code and have it work, you know, like in the, in the documentation of R functions, you can just copy and paste the code and it just works. And vignettes, you know, for R packages where the kind of the author of the package will work through some example to demonstrate their method and it just works. You know, there's built in data set and there's instructions in the code and you can, you can step through and really clearly see how does something work. And then you can gradually swap out the data set that the author provides and swap in your own and then you can sort of make the transition between the toy analysis in their package and your own real work and so i really i felt inspired by that kind of that whole sort of ethos of things just working and the emphasis on like on seeing the result for yourself like run the code and see the output and see that it's really you're really getting something and in excel it's like it's not always clear you know you can download someone's template and Maybe it can work, maybe not. You don't know if it's the right result or whatnot. But in our, there's very strong kind of ethic about like run the code and get this result, you know, run the, do a test or something like that. So this was quite inspiring for me, like find, like just the, the the excitement of the growth of the community and being able to, having this emphasis on reproducibility uh, really got me, got me really fired up. And I kind of, uh, this interest in just, you know, running, being able to run the same code over and over and get the same result or someone else's code and get the same result as them, that really uh, stimulated a lot of thinking uh, by me, not not just about that interesting detail of being able to check my analysis again, but then, like, what is the implication for all of science, for anyone who makes any kind of number, 
you know, where it's quite profound, I think, actually. A lot of your code is on GitHub. How do you feel about your code being open to the public eye that much? Uh, yes, I mean, it's quite fun, but I have to be honest. And now I'm an associate professor, so I'm tenured faculty of a permanent job at the University of Washington here. But I also had a lot of code uh, before I was tenured as an assistant professor. And I, I was much more shy to share it uh, before I had a permanent job. So, you know, in, in an early career kind of stage, I was quite uh, reluctant to share my code and quite reluctant to talk about reproducibility and open science and these kind of things that now I feel very strongly about. So um, in a state of, uh, with a, how do I say, like a vulnerable career stage, I was reluctant to be to be so open with my work. And even now when I work with students, uh, you know, have my own graduate students and undergraduates, I, I recommend them perhaps we will keep the code private until, you know, the paper is accepted for publication or your dissertation is passed or something like that, just in case there's some, just don't want any risk of scooping or or unwanted attention, this kind of thing, to interfere with their their uh, their research work. But now that I'm have a, like in a secure career position, a permanent job, um, you know, I'm quite happy to make the code open. And in many cases, I, I will, the very first uh, couple of characters of some manuscript will be in the open on GitHub. And most of the time, it's really fun. I enjoy to be able to show people and say, this is what I'm working on right now. And from time to time, uh, some random person browsing GitHub will see something, some manuscript I'm working on it, they will spot some typo some trivial mistake and they'll make a pull request and just fix it. And then we can have a small conversation and it just feels very, you know, very charming and fun. It seems like the proper way that we should be doing science is this kind of uh, large collaborative activity where people who don't have a personal relationship can still uh, contribute to each other's projects in this way. So, so quite, I'm quite enthusiastic about it. And I think it's quite nice to be able to point to these things and say, look, I'm working on this at the moment. Maybe there's something useful you can find there, or I can, uh, It shows something I'm working on in great detail because it's easy for me to find there. And, other, you know, it's nice when other people are doing the same and I'm looking for work to draw on for my own thing. And I say, oh, they're, they're working on this at the moment right now. I can look to see what is the result, what is the method, and I can benefit from it right away. So I feel like we contribute to a lot of efficiency in the scientific process. We don't have to wait for many years until the manuscript is complete and published. And then we don't have to wait to write an email to that person and say, can you tell me more about this or that thing? We can look into their repository as it's happening and get the information we need very quickly. So it can save us, I think, maybe years of time in the process of like scientific communication and collaboration. So I feel quite, generally feel quite you know, optimistic and fun about it, but I'm also sensitive to the risk. You know, as, as I mentioned, I didn't really do this much myself until I had kind of a secure kind of career situation. And I'm a bit reluctant with my own students and early career researcher collaborators. I, I would try to be, I feel like it's a responsible thing to alert them to the possibility that someone else could be watching the repository very closely, you know, someone with a competitor or someone with a, a sinister interest in the work and we need to be mindful of the possibilities. I think in archaeology it's quite, the risk is low, you know, it's a small community and it's not really cutthroat for millions of dollars of grants and huge discoveries and things. So I, I think other disciplines maybe have to be more vigilant about that. But even so, I, I recognize there's some risk. And so I feel like uh, from, in my situation now, it's, I'm comfortable to do it. But for a junior uh, scholar, I, I would think they should be aware of the risks. Yeah. 
Okay. And do you think in regard to publication, do you think that it might have had a positive or negative impact of working so openly? Oh, yes, I think both. In the peer review process? Yes, uh, exactly. So I'll tell you the negative impact first and then maybe some positive impacts. So uh, negative impact, you know, once submitted some paper and all code and data was available online, of course, like this. And uh, one of the peer reviewers evidently knew what to do, which is a surprise because normally this is all ignored by the peer reviewer. They don't really know how to, how to um, navigate or make sense of any of these materials, you know, because it's kind of unfamiliar. Like for the typical peer reviewer, I think in most fields, most social sciences, code and data are just, they don't know what, quite what to do with it. Um, but in this case, they knew what to do. And they were able to run all the code and have a close look at many of the intermediate data products through the analysis. And they found some quite critical problem <laughs> in the analysis. And said, well, you know, something quite bad happening about here. <laughs> so I don't think we can accept the paper until you fix that. And, and I got the review back and I was kind of, you know, so on one hand, happy that they taken the time to have a look because I put all the effort into making that available. On the other hand, obviously a bit disappointed that I made a mistake. So I'm still kind of uh, overcoming the uh, complex emotions to that situation to, to fix that up and, and resubmit. So that's kind of negative. I, I guess it's not really negative. I, I should feel happy that some uh, mistake was saved from going into the scientific literature. Far outweigh that, that kind of minor road bump. Uh, you know, in my publication activities. So I think, uh, you know, being one of the first people, I think, in archaeology and some social science to be so uh, visible and have such a strong commitment to this way of working is quite uh, distinctive. And so I, I've become quite well known as someone who works in this way and have a lot, you know, compared to, let's say, a, a peer of mine who has the same number of publications of roughly the same citation and impact, I also have all this other stuff on the internet that is available for people to see. So my kind of surface area or visibility as a researcher is greatly multiplied by this effort uh, to make the code and the data uh, available and accessible to other people and to kind of promote this way of working. So, so it's, uh, I think it results in me having, uh, you know, quite being quite well known in my research community, I guess, and receive many interesting invitations to participate in activities about the future of the discipline and how to address the challenges that we face in looking forward in archaeology and the social sciences. And, you know, I get many exciting opportunities to, to talk to other scholars that I, I would normally perhaps never be exposed to and hear about their thoughts about, you know, how can we improve uh, archaeological science and this kind of thing. So I feel those are all great uh, positive outcomes from, from working in this way. And of course, it's this significant uh, investment of time Maybe I could write more papers uh, instead of posting code or writing code uh, that is suitable for other people to read. But I think it's worth it, you know, I think because if you think of science as I do, you know, that we must expose the whole pipeline, we must emphasize reproducibility, then there's no way to avoid working like this, I feel. And it's kind of, this is why I was kind of in the closet about it for so many years, because I feel like the obvious conclusion is there many people who are not working like this, who just produce the pu publication right at the end of a small PDF, like basically unscientific, because we don't have enough material to, to see the, the nature of all of the small decisions that they've made along the way. And I kind of hesitated uh, for many years to talk about that uh, because it's been insulting, you know, to my colleagues and my the people who 
who need to vote on me for grants and publications and so on. And I don't want to put them too much on the wrong side of accusing them of being unscientific. Uh, but now, you know, I have a permanent job and things generally fine. I'm more comfortable to make this. And I feel like it's part of my duty to this, to the uh, research community to, to be bold and say these more critical things and draw attention to maybe how we can improve uh, our, our research process as a community and say, well, maybe we can say this old way of working where you just produce the PDF article and keep everything private. Maybe that is not as scientific as we thought it is. And we can't really identify ourselves as a science unless we show all this kind of other products uh, in between. So I feel like generally, you know, some negative, some positive, but over overall positive uh, impact for me. Okay. So we spoke a lot about sharing code and sharing data, and you are a co-author of the article Towards Standard Practices for Sharing Computer Code and Programs in Neuroscience, published in Nature and Neuroscience. So I think most of this principle described in this article could be applied to other disciplines as well. Could you summarize what should be shared besides the plain source code? Yes, yeah, so that was a very uh, fun um, project to be part of, and I was quite surprised to be involved. And I, I believe that my... So, you know, it's a group of neuroscientists, and they had a meeting uh, at Cambridge, and I think it's use of code in neuroscience, and I was kind of one of, I think, perhaps maybe the only non-neuroscientist there. But, you know, I had some things on GitHub and some presentations about why do we do this kind of thing, and it caught their attention. So they, so they invited me in for some kind of perspective about this uh, use of code outside of neuroscience and maybe to learn about what is normal in some other fields. And so... And this paper was the result. So you ask about um, what could be shared beside the plain source code. And so I guess uh, in this paper, we talk maybe about two, uh, one or two other things. And uh, perhaps the main thing, aside from the source code, is the version control information. And so we might say like uh, version control database or record of changes or something like that. I don't, you know, the doesn't really matter exactly, but in that paper, and I think what most people are using now is a version control system such as Git, or some some people who adopted it much earlier maybe using something like Mercurial. So it's a, a way of tracking the changes that happen to, to especially the code, but but some people can use it also for data files, so that you can see um, all of the decisions that are made throughout a the development of a research project. You can see dead ends that were taken in the analysis. And you can see the contribution of different people involved in the project as well. So that's a fairly that's a that's a big a big deal in that paper, and and uh, it's kind of um, I believe unfortunately it's a very high technical barrier for most people. Uh, you know, Git. I mean, I will use maybe three or four Git commands ninety nine percent of the time, and then when I have to use one extra Git command, everything is chaos and terrible, and I spend a lot of time on. Stack Overflow, and it's and there are many you know many jokes about how difficult that is. So uh, I hesitate to recommend it uh, to many people. You know, I kind of consider version control as something of an advanced step. But in the neuroscience community, you know, that many of them are used have been using code for many years, and it's, it seems quite natural and normal. Uh, so many of them seem quite ready to adopt uh, version control. So that's one big thing. Uh, let's see what you ask about other things that should be shared. So we have come uh, some other things relating to code. 
the contribution that perhaps I'm most proud of to that manuscript is the very short section, and it's not really technical, but the section on etiquette. So it's about, um, you know, as I mentioned before, like uh, we don't really have any kind of norms or kind of uh, culture of what to do when people share or put their make their code and data available. So we know well what to do when a journal article is published. Uh, you know, we can write an email to the author or we can write a write a, a article in response or we can write something to the editor there's kind of normal ways of reacting to to the publication of a journal article that are established kind of cultural behaviors in academia right um and so we all are are raised on those traditions and we see them in the literature we see little uh arguments in publication and so on that we're kind of acculturated to but when because code and data availability is relatively new and many people who have a, you know many early career researchers or senior researchers they don't they're not accustomed to managing those kind of things and so if you stumble across someone's uh, code on github and uh, maybe you see something you don't like or you disagree with it's not obvious how you communicate that how you respond and so in some cases you might some we see some people will write some kind of grumpy tweet or some in a some something on a blog or something like that and and it's maybe not clear if that's the right thing to do it might seem a bit offensive you know maybe you should check with the author of the code first privately and give them a chance to fix it or explain before you kind of humiliate them maybe on twitter or on the internet so we observe some of this behavior a couple of examples in the in the meeting that that led to this paper uh, and we kind of feel like oh, we should give some guidance because there's no kind of norm or culture or understanding of how to deal with these research products. We should give a little bit of guidance about, you know, if you see something that doesn't look right or you have a question, how do you manage that in a way that makes people feel comfortable? Because if there's more and more cases of humiliating tweets, oh, the code style is ugly or something like that, no, nobody is going to share anything because they're going to be, anxious that they'll be humiliated by some uh, some bully or some uh, aggressive person so we just have a couple of sentences in there that uh, suggest like okay uh, firstly when you if you see something that you have a question about contact the author and give them some chance to explain and secondly uh, in making your own material available you should include some some instructions on how to uh, how other people can deal with it you know how to if they want to make a contribution how they should contribute to you. Uh, should they do it by pull request or should they initiate some correspondence by email initially, this kind of thing. So we suggest, uh, you know, like in the documentation that we, we emphasize the importance of documentation around the code as well. Don't just make the code available, but a- another thing that you need to make available is some kind of instructions about how people can can relate to it, what to expect from it and uh, how, to, how to make sense of it. So like the readme file, a minimal, minimal readme file, know what the code does uh how how they can run it and how they can deal with you as the code author about it so some of these kind of softer like let's we can say maybe like social engineering kind of things to help establish some norms about communicating uh, within a research community um about code of course we also talk about sharing data a little bit but that's not the main point of the paper and some other things like uh about uh, including testing and the possibility of continuous integration. We, we introduce many uh, software tools, software engineering tools, I guess, in this paper that we see people kind of adopting in an ad hoc way in, in research communities that, that we believe are quite useful for um, you know, in making soft research software development more efficient. 
uh, and just communicating things more efficiently to other researchers. So other things we say is like a license. You know, there's some quite widely established software licenses that are popular in the software engineering and development, and we see researchers kind of adopting them as well. And it's confusing. You know, we're, we don't we don't really understand them well. We're not lawyers, and we don't really care about the commercial implications in many cases. Uh, so we just tend to adopt the ones that we see being widely used elsewhere. And so we have a little bit of guidance there in this paper about those kind of licenses. So we we talk about some of these things around. Uh, the software itself that we think help to make, you know, around the code that we think help to make the process of sharing it and reusing it uh, more efficient, more transparent, less uncertainty for other people about, you know, can I use it or not? And how should I use it? And if I see a bug or have a question, how do I get an answer? This kind of thing. Okay. So I've seen for your code, you prefer to use the MIT license. Can you explain us why you decided to use this license? Yes, yes, and I see that you, you've covered this topic before with a detailed uh, interview with a few uh, authorities on the topic, and uh, and I see that uh, you know for me I'm I'm mostly using what I see my p people that I admire in the R community uh, using. So pe you know people who are sort of senior to me and have been more active uh, writing research code, writing papers, and sharing it on GitHub and the internet. And I just look to see. Well, you know, they look like pretty smart guys, pretty smart people. They, they, they may have thought about it a bit. What have they chosen? Uh, well, just <laughs> they're, they're not in jail yet for some kind of copyright violation or something like that. So probably they made a good choice. So I will use the same as them. So my, and, you know, um, so that's part of the reason why I've chosen MIT. And the other reason is, uh, you know, it's quite short and relatively easy for me to understand. And I believe what I'm doing with that license and, you know, I, I'm not, haven't really studied the question in great detail but i believe what i'm doing is uh, trying to make the the code i'm writing as maximally uh, available for any for reuse in any kind of context so someone can use it for their paper and, and it's happened several times people will take some some loop or some snippet of my code and use it in theirs it's, you know i would love to see that or maybe if they want to develop some commercial software they can use it in that freely i don't care I think that's quite unlikely. I haven't noticed that yet. So maximizing the reuse potential is one thing about MIT that I really like. And the second thing about it uh, is that it kind of, uh, there's no liability to me as far as I understand. So if someone is using my code and yet it might contain some mistake and maybe they uh, lose a lot of money on the stock market or their paper is uh, has to be retracted or something embarrassing like that, uh, they, they, they don't really have any recourse to to sue me or, or blame me for it because the license, as I understand, the text of the license says, well, it's you're on your own. You know, you can anything that happens to you, if you use this code, is you know, your, your own fault, nothing to do with me. So I quite like that aspect of it. <laughs> so I don't want to, uh, to, to go to jail or, you know, um, have some negative consequence if there's a bug in my code that affects someone else. There's partly based on what I see other people using in, in the, community and, and based on my kind of limited understanding of that. I, and I'm, some of my colleagues that I really respect use the GPL license, and I think I quite admire that choice as well, but I feel that it, it, because of its viral quality, you know, like any kind of downstream code should have that GPL license. It, it might limit the use a bit. And uh, so, for example, in my case, you know, I'm not expecting people to write like million-dollar software, but I do know that 
some archaeologists work in a commercial setting, you know, they work for an engineering company or a cultural resource management or something like that, where there are lawyers who are going to look at these things and going to say like, okay, if it has this kind of license, you can't use it in any of your work for our company. And so I feel like there might be some restriction. It could cause my software to to be limited in some context for the commercial archaeologist who just wants to do some simple data analysis or something like that. Uh, but then they might have this very kind of, uh, uh, you know, eagle-eyed lawyer who's very strict about the licensing of software and say, well, you know, although we're not going to make any money out of it and not commercialize, we don't allow the use of this software in this context. So I just want to make sure it's maximally available to any archaeologist or kind of social scientist that I can imagine in, in any context. And I've heard of some sort of second or third-hand cases where people, you know, they're an archaeologist working in a commercial setting and they run into this situation, sort of big company bureaucracy, and we don't allow any software of this kind of license or that. So I just feel like oh, I don't want to, uh, the license to get in the way of that process. So that's that's why I prefer the MIT. But some of my colleagues are a bit more maybe open, open source fundamentalists that will prefer the, the GPL. Okay, some small advertisement for our listeners. If you want to have more details about this complex topic of choosing a license, we like to refer to our episode seven with Carl and James. Yeah, so maybe listen to it if you're interested in this topic. So here I think we missed one point in the paper to discuss about, and you mentioned something about user support. Can you explain what you mean by user support? And maybe some people are afraid if they hear user support because it's a lot of work to support things. So what do you mean with user support? Yes, it's definitely a delicate subject. And, uh, you know, I feel, for me, I feel like uh, the code is kind of a scientific research product and I should be as comfortable, like part of my professional duty is to respond to questions about that and support people who want to use it because it's that's you know my job i produce scientific product and some of it is a knowledge claim and i should be ready to explain my knowledge claim and defend and help people use my knowledge that i produce and then software is and method is another thing that i feel is part of that same thing i should help people to use that as part of my you know contribution to society as a as a scientist and researcher, but I know that some people don't feel the same way. And you know, I mean, if you feel like I got to write the code to get some results or publish the result, and that is the product and the code is the, is not relevant to other people. And I don't want to, they will say to me, I don't want to make the code available because I don't want to deal with people's questions on it and help them to use it. I don't want to do a, develop a GUI to make it easier for people to use and so on. So I, I feel it is a kind of complex topic. That view that they don't want to support any use of their code is is kind of not, not a good one. It's irresponsible. You know, as a as a researcher, usually we're funded by public money. Like we should be ready to defend, explain, and support you know any of our scientific work. I think so. I I I don't feel that people who are reluctant to answer questions about their software is are on a very solid ground. But on the other hand, I think we can. Um, we can require some basic, uh, let's say, prerequisites before people or expectations. We can set some expectations. Yes, that's what we can say uh, in order to have some kind of middle ground where we can meet people who use our software. So we can say, well, I can't teach every single person how to use R who's slightly interested in archaeology, right? But let's say that you've learned some R and know some things and you just need a little bit of help to make some sense of my code or whatever, 
I feel like I can I can go that close that gap to there, but I cannot take every person who's slightly interested in archaeology from nothing to being fluent in R and and programming, right? So so some of the documentation that we provide in our repositories helps to communicate that expectation. So we usually try to have a a file, a plain text file that is just called contributing. And it says something like, you know, if you want to uh, add something to this code or make some use of it or or engage with it in some way, these are kind of like the minimum things that we expect you to have. And maybe it's something like a, you know, GitHub account. So you can, uh, we can discuss it on the issue tracker or you can make a pull request if you want to suggest a change. And then if you want to, uh, use the code or write the code, you should be familiar with this style guide, for example. You should be able to make sense of the instructions of style guide. So that sort of sets the expectations for um, for how people can uh, can engage and use because it's, uh, you know, I would love, of course, to teach every archaeologist R, but it's not, I don't feel it's very good use of my time and energy, and I think pe- people will perhaps learn in better ways than directly from me. So, so it's, a, a, I think, a bit of a delicate and complicated issue, and because it's still, I feel, kind of early days of sharing code and having code recognized as like a research product that you can de- engage with, there isn't really a strong sense of what is normal about that. You know, one of my colleagues will say, "No, I'm not going to share any code. I can't be. I can't handle all the questions that are going to come." And then I will say, "Well, I- I'll share and I'll deal with some of the questions, but not all." And maybe a third person still will make a bigger commitment and say, "I will share and teach everyone everything from the ground up." And we don't really have a strong sense of what is normal and good. Which of the three of us is doing the right the right thing, the sort of culturally appropriate thing for our research discipline? Of course, I believe that my position is probably the one, and the one who refuses to share anything. I think that will be eventually seen to be a bad approach, you know, to be uh, unscientific and to be uh, highly selfish, right, and abnormal. And then the other person who is uh, wants to teach everyone, I think that will it will be seen to be. Uh, irresponsible, like a bad use of their time as a, as a scientist. But we don't know. You know, it's not clear what is the normal thing. So I'm watching with great interest, you know, to see how other people handle this thing. How much do they share? How much do they help other people, you know, from the ground up to make sense of their code and use it and stuff? So it's an exciting time, yeah. <laughs> Another important thing next to sharing code is making it reproducible. Uh, what is your feeling about the general reproducibility of publication in your field? Yes, this is such an interesting topic, and uh, I'm so uh, uh, you know so absorbed in the question of reproducibility, and I'm really inspired by all of the exciting work that is going on in other fields uh, that are a little bit ahead of us in archaeology and the social sciences about thinking about reproducibility and you know questions of definition and sort of very philosophical issues about how do we maintain our status as a science and what are, and then the very practical concern about like tools what kind of tools should we be using to try to accomplish tools and services to to accomplish this thing and so i you know i really get a lot of inspiration and uh, feel a lot of excitement watching some of my colleagues in other disciplines uh, tackle these problems and in archaeology i just feel like i'm taking the best things i see elsewhere and trying to make them work in archaeology so i definitely think that it's improving over time and i feel very uh, optimistic in archaeology and the social sciences, I, I see a lot of clever people, you know, they're putting a lot of uh, a lot of serious thought into this problem uh, and making a lot of progress. A lot of great like software engineering um, 
occurring to solve problems that I just, you know, a couple of years ago, I just looked at it and think it's impossible. We cannot ever deal with that. And then a few years later, some, some clever R packages arrived and just kind of does it really nicely. And, you know, even just earlier uh, this week, Noam Ross released an R package on GitHub that helps to solve the problem of, uh, you know, we write in R Markdown, but maybe some collaborator is going to use track changes in, in a, a Microsoft Word document, and how can we get those changes back into R Markdown? And he has written this very beautiful package that seems to solve 99% of that problem. So really uh, inspiring. A lot of progress, uh, terrific improvement, very rapid improvement over time. It makes me very enthusiastic to talk about it and to teach my students about it because I feel like it's a very practical thing we can do. But on the other hand, I feel a bit, uh, you know, frustrated that in my field, you know, it's a small field and very few people are paying much attention to this issue. And so I feel like I'm just kind of talking into the wind a lot and being a bit of this kind of crazy person talking about a subject that is of no relevance to to the people who are holding the levers of power, you know, in my field, the senior, uh, senior researchers on the grant committees and editing the journals and so on, I say to them, look, maybe we can have a badge like some other journal to show about uh, open method and open data. And they're like, oh, no, it seems a bit silly. So, so it's definitely uh, one funeral at a time kind of situation <laughs> in terms of improving the reproducible publications and research. But I'm very optimistic. You know, I see uh, many, um, you know, PhD students and postdoc and early career researchers kind of, independently, spontaneously converging on these tools uh, and services to improve their reproducibility. And I see them, you know, benefiting. Their, visi- their visibility as a scholar is greatly magnified um, by their adoption of these tools, and it makes them very distinctive. Uh, their research methods are very uh, become appear very original. And this is only a short time. I think, you know, it's kind of a window of opportunity where we can, where you can be new and exciting to do this, and then maybe in twenty or thirty years, everyone will be doing it, and it won't be very exciting to, to, to do this. And you'll have to think of something new. So, uh, definitely exciting and improving, and things that are coming along. And I think, um, you know, how can how can it be improved? I think, well, uh, my sort of strategy for my own effort to do this is in, in two two directions. And in one hand, it's kind of top down. And the other hand is bottom up. So, so the bottom up approach is like, you know, undergraduate teaching. Like, I can use R in many of my undergraduate classes to teach a class on how to analyze stone artifacts. Well, we can measure the stone artifact and then we can analyze the data that we collect from our measurements using R, for example. And, and so then the student, for the student, it's just normal. Like the normal thing that you use, the first thing they turn to to do any kind of data analysis visualization is going to be R or maybe in my colleagues' class here that I do Python. Then they just is the normal thing and they will grow up to be the next generation of researchers for which it's just normal to use some open source tool. They will write all their assignments in Markdown and use Pandoc to render into PDF or uh, Word or something like that. So that's the, that's the kind of bottom-up approach that we're working on. And the top-down approach is more like you know, I try to join some kind of high-level committee. Like at the moment, I'm on the, the Society of American Archaeology Publication Committee, and I kind of agitate in that committee. And I say, well, we have these journals. You know, we should have some policy about, you know, data availability or requirement, or if there's some data visualization in, in the article, which is very normal, we should require that the author make available the raw data behind that visualization. This is a fairly common 
requirement for many journals. You know, why don't we do it as well? Or why don't we, if somebody mentions in their article they did the analysis with R, we should demand that they make their script available for the reader to inspect. So I try to raise the um, visibility and awareness of these issues. And it's quite, it's definitely the long game, you know, because many people on these committees are many uh, generations to my senior. And a lot of the topics that we're talking about are quite unfamiliar. So it's a lot of uh, establishing some familiarity before we can implement any any concrete change. You know, a lot of people are hearing about what is R for the first time, and they ask, oh, "Why do we need that?" We've I did my whole career in this other in SPSS or Excel. Why, why, what is the point? And then we have to talk about, oh, you know, mouse click versus scripting, and you know, it's nice to see the decisions that people make in detail that don't get captured in the short methods section of the journal article. So it's a lot of education to do. Uh, in the top-down approach. In the bottom-up approach, you just tell the students, this is how we do it, this is normal, and they just just accept. <laughs> Except for maybe a graduate student, because a graduate student will have some training already, and then they, they'll have a lot of exposure to what other graduate students are doing, and they may question you and say, why do you force me to write my PhD thesis and now mark down? <laughs> the other students don't have to do that. <laughs> so, so this is the, how we're working on improving it. And, you know, the last few years, uh, you know, I feel like I'm being joined by many of my colleagues uh, to, to assist in these efforts. It was very inspiring. And I feel a lot of uh, camaraderie uh, in this process, which is very uh, heartwarming, I guess. Yeah. In regard to tools for retributable research, you contribute to Error Tools, a set of tools for writing retributable research in air. What is the purpose of this package and in which ways does it improve reproducibility? Yes, yes, that's a great question. So uh, the package grew out of, uh, of a wonderful uh, summer school that was organized by some of my colleagues in Germany at the uh, Free University in Berlin and uh, the uh, Christian Albrechts University in Kiel. And they organized a summer school on reproducible research in landscape archaeology in 2017. And, you know, uh, I thought I would just kind of go there and uh, we would copy and paste some things from my previous manuscripts and it would just all work fine and I uh, would show them the basic principles and it would be great. Uh, but it, it really didn't work like that at all. It was actually quite embarrassing for me. Uh, I, I struggled a lot to show them how, how things worked and, of course, each of them had some unique error on their computer that I'd never seen before. So toward the end of the summer school, we agreed that this wasn't really a sustainable way to, to write reproducible manuscripts. You know, my, my sort of personal system of copying and pasting bits and pieces was fine for me, but it couldn't work really on anyone else's computer. So at that we sort of pivoted at that point and said, look, why don't we take some time to develop some functions and make a really robust approach to, uh, to, put, to quickly set up the infrastructure for writing a reproducible journal article using R and R Markdown with all these kind of best practices or good enough practices that we've seen in the literature. Let's kind of build them into uh, a couple of functions where somebody can just run a few functions in a couple of minutes and then be, and then be writing their, their article or their report in R Markdown and not have to worry so much about Uh, you know, putting in the .git ignore or what is going to be in the in the readme file exactly. We sort of take care of all of that, um, um, all that decision making that is not really research, but it's kind of need to do if you want to work in this way. So we, the, we in the summer school we finished off the summer school by starting this package, and then we've been developing it kind of remotely together. My German colleagues and I and a bunch of other people just pop up who who can see a need 
for this kind of thing, and they've been contributing uh, to it as well. And we really welcome everyone who sees some see some value and wants to help contribute. So we the idea is, um, you know, we want to get you want to get you working with the best practices or good enough practices using R and R Markdown to write a reproducible manuscript uh, as quickly as possible and the, with the least amount of pointless decision-making. Uh, we want to have all the, you know, some good defaults, sensible decisions made. So you just run these functions that set things up and, and create a directory, a file structure that is logical and other people can easily navigate it and you know where things are very well give you version control so that you can quickly start collaborating with co-authors and then give you an environment where you can just start writing the code and writing the paper you know, with, with and get on with doing the science with as little fuss as possible. So that's kind of our, our motivation. Uh, the purpose for that is to get people writing in R Markdown, writing the reproducible manuscript as quickly as possible with as many of the best or good enough practices uh, kind of taken care of as quickly as possible. Okay. So this package contains eight steps which instructions for the creation of a research compendium. I think some of the steps we discussed in the publication we referred to before, but I think two of them are really new. If we look at the step six, you use a Docker file. So my first question is, we have an episode four with Carl Böttinger about Rocker. Is this step to use this Docker file related to this Rocker project from Carl, or is it something completely different? Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly right. So we we really depend on the Rocker project and the Rocker containers, and and it was it was really when they became available that we realized that oh, it's very trivial now to use Docker uh, in this system because we can just pull the do the Rocker container that has our Studio and R and even maybe Tidyverse and many things like that. Uh, already to go and uh, very little effort on our part to then make it suitable for the for the compendium but i should say that uh, yeah so we really uh, owe a huge debt of gratitude uh, to carl uh, burdicker and uh, dirk edelbutel uh, for, for putting together and maintaining the rocker project a huge contribution to the r community but i should say that uh, you know those those other steps uh, six seven eight And we, we sort of have a ninth step that we haven't written a function before, but that we talk about in the documentation. These are a bit more advanced steps. Um, and, you know, I think many people in the research community are not, re not really ready for those yet. Uh, they're kind of, and the payoff for doing those steps is quite small for most people. You know, unless you're doing really a heavily computationally intensive project that is very sensitive to the whole computational environment and there's many complicated functions that benefit from testing and many collaborators for which continuous integration can uh, add a lot of efficiency for most people, you know, especially in archaeology, uh, they, they may never go to steps six, seven, and eight. And maybe we don't need to do that for maybe another five or 10 years uh, because most, it just isn't going to be worth the effort for most people. I think most people will get to, you know, very high degree of reproducibility uh, by step five, actually. And so, you know, I've been doing some workshops on this Lately, I was just in uh, the Oxford University last week to do a workshop on this, and we, we stopped at step five. And I just talked briefly about the other steps. But my, my feeling is that for most people who can use R a little bit, uh, you know, they're going to get a huge boost in the reproducibility of their work uh, with steps one to five, and then steps six to eight, you know, maybe one or two percent increase for a terrific amount of work <laughs> for someone who's not, not really very into it. 
uh, and not doing a highly computationally complex project. Uh, so, so we, we can imagine maybe some kind of like logarithmic curve. You know, steps one to five are quite flat in terms of the amount of effort required. And then steps six, seven, eight, it's quite a lot more kind of cognitive burden and coding, you know, command line expertise required to get those going. But, you know, steps one to five is going to be like 99% increase in reproducibility for most people. Uh, so that's where I really like want to focus, uh, you know, when I do the workshop, I spend a lot of time to talk about those. And uh, in my teaching, you know, emphasize those as well. And for the other steps, it's more like the ad- advanced advanced reproducibility, we can say. So, uh, yeah, so we have some opinions about that. Yeah. Okay. In your eight steps, step six is to use Docker. Step seven is to use Travis. Uh, Docker and Travis are traditionally used in software development and deployment. Um, why do you think that these are becoming relevant for scientists? Yes, I think because uh, um, with Docker, uh, you know, we now we often move a lot between different machines. You know, I may have some laptop, and then I might go to a colleague's computer. We want to run the same analysis on their computer, or I may have a de- desktop or laptop, and then I want to move it onto a supercomputer or cluster or something like that. And if I'm using a kind of container-based approach, it's very trivial to have things run just exactly the same way because it's all happening inside this container. So I really feel like that's a that's a huge win uh, for people who move between their machines a lot or between different scales of analysis a lot. Uh, and you know, even if uh, you know I'm using R, but maybe my R analysis depends on some other libraries outside of R, and that can be a real fuss to configure that and make it all work. But if it's all in a Docker container. There's a lot of efficiency to be gained uh, without having to fuss with those dependencies moving between one computer and another or one um, environment and another. So I think there's a a lot of time to be saved in using Docker. And also we can abstract away a lot of the computational environment to improve reproducibility. So maybe we can gain, you know, maybe another five or ten years of the lifespan of the reproducibility of some project by controlling the whole computational environment uh, with a Docker file. So I feel really excited about, about that. With Travis, Travis, I think, is more uh, quality control and quality indicator. So if I'm browsing someone else's repository of code and there's Travis badge and it's green, I might think, okay, things I can probably count on things working uh, on this. But if it's red, I might say, okay, maybe it's still work in progress, or maybe it's abandoned or something like that. Maybe I will search for another another repository to take code from or something like that. And then in the, so that's a kind of quality indicator. And for quality control, you know, it saves you from having to run, continually run things on your own machine and and kind of interrupt the flow of writing the code or writing the manuscript because you kind of outsource a lot of the checking work to the Travis uh, computer. You know, I, I will usually give instructions to Travis to render my markdown document into the HTML or into, into a word document you know, basically test all the code in the manuscript that it still works. Of course, it doesn't tell me if the code is right or wrong, just that it still works. And usually that's enough. For me, I want to know if I've introduced some breaking uh, change or not. And so that can save me some time just running continuously and check waiting on my computer if it's just running on someone else's computer. So that kind of uh, quality uh, quality control is quite useful. And especially if you're collaborating with other people and you can see at which point was some problem introduced, you can track it back quite well. So it's a, primarily an efficiency. Uh, there's a lot of efficiency to be gained in outsourcing that kind of quality control and quality indicator with Travis. So 
that can be useful for just making sure things are ready to go when you're ready to um, publish or make them public or something like that. And with the testing, it's kind of, um, you know, I, I rarely actually use uh, our functions and our package uh, in my manuscripts. And so really we'll use a test for all that just from time to time is quite rare. But I know that some people, you know, write more of a method style paper where the main contribution of the paper is an R package, R function uh, for which they expect people to use in other many other contexts. And my work is often not like that. And I often don't write code that I expect people to just uh, reuse directly. Uh, so testing of the function is useful in that situation where it's more of a methods contribution and you've written some function that, that needs to be very, uh, you need to know that it works under a wide variety of circumstances. And so the testing environment that uh, use this package will help you set up very efficiently, create a test to ensure that, you know, functions that you write as part of a manuscript can work under a wide range of conditions. It can save a lot of time to do that and a lot of kind of Think a lot of the cognitive burden of uh, you know is it going to work if someone does this or someone does that you can easily write the test yeah. but these are relatively rare things you know so the the order of instructions in the rr tools package is kind of like um the frequency that we expect these things to be relevant to people sort of in the real world so you know uh you know steps one through five i think as i was saying like most people will get a lot of benefit huge benefit in reproducibility and using those, but by the time they get to step eight, only a very small number of people will find some advantage in implementing those any value. Yeah. By running Docker, just as a side question, do you run Linux on your personal computer? Uh, I have one computer that runs Linux, yes, but most of the time I'm using OS X or Windows, and that's mostly because that's what my collaborators are using, and I want to make sure I'm using an environment that you know I can relate to with them and say it doesn't work, and I say, okay, let, what work can I and I can to troubleshoot, especially, uh, you know, working with students. And most students are using Windows OS X, so I want to be on an environment where I can I can understand their experience well. And, I, you know, when I'm preparing instructions for an assignment or something like that, I can, I can anticipate how things are going to, what their experience is going to be like, yeah. So to summarize your interview, you openly advocate for open science. What is your evaluation of the openness of science at the moment? And where do you hope that open science will be in 10 or 20 years from now? Oh, yes. Um, at the moment, I think you know, it's very uneven. Like some research communities seem to be quite open. It seems to be quite normal and, you know, mandated by federal funders and just the, the thing that people do as part of the normal work of science. And I, and I look into those communities and feel feel a little jealous of their situation. Uh, then on the other hand, I am excited about the potential for other research communities like archaeology and some social sciences. And I see, oh, we, in the future, we can be more like that and look at all the things we can enjoy, like the speed in which we can uh, access each other's uh, you know, developments and discoveries and so on, and how much easier it will be to understand what is going on in other people's work. So it makes me very optimistic, you know, when I look into the, look over the uneven distribution of openness and I think, oh yes, you know, in the future, and I, I hear other people say this, that in the future, you know, what we call open science now will just be normal science of the future from, from t 10 or 20 years. And so it makes me very curious, you know, in 10 or 20 years, I, I should still be alive and professionally active. What, what will be the new exciting thing that, that I will be listening on your podcast about, you know, in that time? I can hardly imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We hope to last that long. <laughs> yes, right. Okay. Um, we'll ask you one question that we ask all of our um, interviewee. Uh, 
What is your favorite text processing tool? We can kind of guess it through your answers, previous answers. Yeah, so I see uh, the list uh, there. And, you know, I'm quite, uh, let's say, quite Catholic, you know, so I will try to use the tools that, that I know my collaborators and students are using so that it's my experience is equivalent to theirs and I can anticipate what they're seeing and and, and, and their, their experience of collaboration can be very frictionless. So, you know, I really admire people who are using Emacs org mode because it seems really cool and lots of neat functions that can make things very efficient. Uh, but very few people that I work with day-to-day use it, uh, actually. And so I feel like, okay, it's a bit, it's a bit obscure. So if I'm writing things in that and then expect them to use it, it, it will maybe introduce some obstacles into collaboration. So I will use Emacs, but I will write in Markdown, for example, and then I will I will you know, write in Markdown with collaborators, and I will say, look, I'm writing in Markdown, just use whatever you like, Sublime Text or Notepad++ or anything that you feel comfortable with to do that. And then, of course, you know, many people are using Microsoft Word in the social sciences, and many of my collaborators are not really there yet with Markdown and R and so on. So, so I, I will use Microsoft Word a lot and I will use LibreOffice uh, as well uh, uh, to write in that environment too, uh, you know, to just to keep the barrier of collaboration as low as possible. So there's some compromise, I guess. I, I may use that uh, Microsoft Word and then I will say, okay, let's we will write in here, but let us, uh, you know, have a supplementary file that we can write in R Markdown and R where we can have everything done transparently if we can't do it all that way. And often that means that I end up doing all of that work or redoing someone else's analysis from Excel into R so I can have it uh, fully reproducible. Or in some cases, the manuscript, you know, just my part will be done in Markdown and in R and other parts of the manuscript that I don't have much control over is done with other tools. So it's kind of, you know, I'm not really an ultra-fundamentalist about this. You know, I want to get the science done. I want to do my part as well as I can, but I don't want to, uh, you know, exclude myself from interesting research by not working with anyone who's not identical uh, to me. So I kind of wonder about that. Should I be more strict? Should I be more insistent? Should it be open source all the way? I, I'm still kind of a bit uncertain about that, how, uh, how forceful to be. But, uh, you know, working in Southeast Asia, uh, a lot of people... Uh, is a lot of these topics are still very new to people. And so I feel like I want to be a friendly introduction. So I say, okay, let's, let's use the tool that you're most comfortable with for now. And then let me tr- maybe show you something cool that you can do with R. And maybe next time we can use R for this and sort of gen- gently friendly introduction to some of the open source alternatives to make it seem, you know, uh, pleasant and fun and easy. Because I see some people who are quite Maybe their enthusiasm is directed in a way that might not appeal to everyone, let's say. So nudging people instead of pushing them to open source tools. Something like that, yeah. And, and maybe it's not uh, very efficient or very fast or whatever, but I feel it's uh, comfortable for me to sort of advocate open source in this kind of more gentle and kind way, I suppose. Yeah, so, so you know, I, in text, I will write a lot of text in R Studio, actually, you know, because I can write R Markdown and run R code very nicely through there. And then I will use uh, Space Max. Is it Space Emacs? Space Max? I'm not sure of the proper pronunciation. But, you know, it's an Emacs distribution for OSX that just has many nice uh, default kind of uh, settings that make it a lot, uh, make it very efficient for me to use. Uh, I, d- I will rarely use LaTeX. I did start... Uh, when I first started to use R, I did write a lot in 
uh, you know, RNW and LaTeX before Markdown and R Markdown was very mature. But then as soon as Markdown became uh, kind of the R Markdown package was released, I immediately switched to that because it's so much easier for me to use. I'm really into Markdown and Bookdown in particular. Bookdown is a package developed uh, out of the, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Yi Hui. Uh, one of the geniuses at R Studio who works on Markdown and Bookdown. And Bookdown is really important because it allows a lot of um, a lot of the things that we really need to do in scholarly writing, you know, citations, reference lists, uh, uh, captions for figures and tables and cross-referencing those in the text really makes them really trivial, really nice. So you can easily write a journal out of manuscript using the using Bookdown uh, and R Markdown in any editor that you like. So sometimes it will be Notepad++ or Emacs or uh, R Studio. Yeah, I think as soon as our studio introduced uh, on-the-fly spell check, uh, all my writing in that because I really uh, don't spell very well <laughs> and quite enjoy Emacs uh, for the spell checking and word counting and that kind of thing. Just simple stuff, yeah. Okay. As we're approaching the end of the interview, is there anything else you would like to share with us? Uh, let's see. Um, yes, I think, um, you know, it's a time now when uh, sort of early career researchers, it's they're seeing other people using open source tools, uh, you know, especially R and Python to kind of for the data analysis kind of process. And maybe they feel like, oh, I have no opportunity to learn it or I didn't learn it, therefore I cannot use it. And I think it's kind of, I want to encourage a different mindset, you know, maybe from like, you don't really need to just take a class on it to be able to use it. But the nature of these tools is such that they're very amenable to kind of like self self learning. And if you just kind of gradually replace the common tasks that you do with, with Excel or SPSS, gradually look for the alternatives or the way to do it in something like R or Python, uh, then you can sort of transition your workflow away from the, the commercial tool, the one that is opaque and doesn't give you much chance to uh, demonstrate the rigor of your work or allow your work to be reusable. You can gradually transition into a workflow that is more reproducible and more open and using a tool that is sustainable and has a great community around it. So I feel, I feel like... Um, You know, people whose early education, like undergraduate training, didn't include these things, they might feel kind of shut out. But I want to encourage them that, you know, you can make this kind of transition by yourself because there's really a lot of uh, high-quality material on the Internet that is quite suitable for just uh, piece by piece replacing the common tasks that you do with the thing like R or Python. And especially, you know, I know R are the best and things like the tidyverse suite you know the suite of packages surrounding the tidy versus really transformed r from a thing that is kind of like you know people really into computer science and really want to understand a lot of computer programming concepts i think the tidy versus made that much less critical for being efficient in r you, you don't need to be highly versed in arcane kind of computer programming concepts you can become very functional and very efficient with r and data analysis uh, using the tidyverse you know, because many of the functions work in a very intuitive kind of plain English way. And so I feel like it's very, now it's very practical, very convenient, very quick to, to sort of do useful work in R without really knowing much at all about, uh, you know, programming concepts and uh, computer science and things like that. So I want to, you know, inspire and 
encourage people who might feel like they're not prepared or don't have the background or foundation or whatever. I think you, you can do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for this time and this great interview. Uh, your contact page is quite filled up, as we can see. Uh, if any of our listeners want to reach you, what would be your preferred channel of communication? Oh, yes, it doesn't really matter. You know, I'd love to uh, get an email or a direct message on Twitter, or if there's something about a certain uh, GitHub repository, some issue on there, I, I will see all of those things. Uh, Probably I will respond fastest is to direct message on Twitter rather than email because often a lot of emails I get are boring and I don't like to look at them. <laughs> But yes, uh, any 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 method is fine. You know, I'm quite uh, quite happy to correspond on any channel. Really. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> yes. Goodbye. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. Or you can reach me at underscore DBRAS or both of us at Philosopher Science. Also, we are on iTunes, Stitchers, and Google Play Music. You can help us by leaving comments and rating to help new listeners discover our show. Recently, we relocated our website at philosopherscience.com where you can find all our contact information and a link to our GitHub page where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our previous episodes or find the RSS feeds to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month and currently we are searching for users or scientists who are using FLOSS software in their research workflow and yeah if you're interested to talk to us about your research your vision about open science and how you do your research with floss yeah please contact us we hope that you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in the next episode bye bye bye